One book will tell you never to eat carbs. One book will tell you never to eat protein. One book will tell you never to eat fat. And you read you read everything and you, you end up like throwing your hands up saying, oh, there's really nothing humans are allowed to eat other than air. So that's not healthy. It's a, developing a horrible relationship with food and, and it's just scaring people into these positions that are just un, unsustainable and untenable and are not necessary. We don't need to eat like that. So I'm just trying to dispel as many of these uh, myths and things as possible with real science, real evidence, real data welcome to the proof podcast a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition physical exercise mindfulness recovery sleep and alignment facts nuance and trustworthy recommendations minus the hyperbole hi friends great to be here with you i'm your host simon hill I'm a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist with an undergraduate science degree and a master's in the science of human nutrition. In today's episode, cardiologist Dr. Muhammad Alo joins me to talk about cardiovascular disease myths, many of which he has been brilliantly covering on TikTok over the past year or so. Is it perfectly okay to eat a lot of saturated fat and red meat if your triglycerides and HDL are normal? Does a coronary artery scan of zero mean we won't have a heart attack. What's better, a coronary artery scan or a CT angiogram for measuring plaque in our coronary arteries? Are statins beneficial? Is too low cholesterol a problem? Does this affect brain health and hormone production? Eggs, fish and fish oil, cooking oils, the list goes on. We covered a lot. And while Dr. Arlo and I don't eat the same diet, we do agree on what the literature makes clear is a healthy dietary pattern. Heart healthy dietary patterns are low in saturated fat, low in ultra processed foods and rich in fiber from fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains, nuts and seeds. Dr. Arlo is a big fan of the Mediterranean diet, which when done properly is a very plant rich dietary pattern that has plenty of evidence to support it for reducing risk of cardiovascular disease, various cancers, and neurodegenerative conditions. If you've read my book, you will know that I wrote about it rather extensively in the chapters on cardiovascular disease, cancer, and brain health. One of the major things the Mediterranean diet has going for it is compliance. People don't have to remove all of the food groups they've been used to eating, which is why many doctors like it. They feel more people are likely to stick with it long term than a more restrictive dietary pattern. This is a good reminder that what's realistic for one person may not be realistic for the next. And there's really little point making changes that only last for a week or so. I personally eat a whole food plant-based diet, which is another variation of this heart healthy theme, but I understand it might not be sustainable for everyone. When we consider the environment and ethics, I think it makes sense at an individual level to eat a diet that's as plant exclusive as possible. For some, that will be a Mediterranean diet, and that's okay. I'm certainly not here to judge anyone. So if questions about fish, meat, and eggs seem a bit odd, given that I personally don't eat them, remember there is a diverse listenership here and everyone is trying to navigate this on an individual level as best they can. So with that, please do enjoy. This is cardiologist, Dr. Muhammad Alo. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. 
You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 mg of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Dr. Allo, welcome to the show. It's great to be finally doing this. All right. I'm honored to be here. I know we've talked a lot uh, off the air, you know, via different social apps, and now we're here. So I'm glad mm-hmm. to be here. Yes, me too. So a little bit of background for the listeners, uh, how we sort of met. I came across you on TikTok, of all places, to find a, a clinical cardiologist. Uh, you have to laugh. I think that that maybe you were tagged in one of my videos or I was tagged in one of your videos. And then I jumped over and I watched a few of, of your own videos. We were just talking off air and you're putting out a lot of content. And I quickly realized, much to my delight, given sort of how hit or miss TikTok can be when it comes to the quality of information, I was, I was like this guy is super across the evidence he's sharing really high quality information he's covering a lot of myths about cardiovascular disease particularly myths related to diet and cardiovascular disease and i'm curious how what was the path for you to end up on tiktok why did you feel compelled to start putting all of these videos out there and spending time on on this app 
So when I when I first got on TikTok, I just got on it briefly back in the summer, mainly to just watch my children and see what they're doing or what they're and I I, barely, I ignored it. I didn't put a lot of things out there. Um, then I met a friend at a graduation party and she said, hey, listen, doc. Uh, TikTok is a fantastic platform. It'll find you your audience. I see you're on Instagram and I see you're on Facebook. Those platforms are not going to find your audience quickly and it's very difficult to grow on those platforms. So she suggested that I just start putting things out um, on TikTok. And I, what I found on TikTok, which was the most shocking, and I'm sure you did too, um, is there's a lot of uh, misinformation. There's all these people saying, eat all the saturated fat you want, eat all the meat in the world, um, just do crazy things. And, 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 you know, I, I've not, uh, seen it that bad. You know, I go to medical conferences, we talk to doctors, we talk to cardiologists. There's not a lot of variance between what doctors are going to say. And then you meet physicians on TikTok that are just saying things that in the, in the medical community would be considered outrageous and laughable, but they have a following. They have a million followers or 2 million followers or 3 million followers. And it was really shocking to me to see people following such bad advice that is completely not based in science or they'll quote like a study. I think I first got onto it when I heard somebody say, uh, well, there's this one study that showed seed oils were harmful in rats like rats. And this was 1965. And I did a little digging and we have almost 66 more years of evidence showing that seed oils are not actually harmful and are also cardioprotective. There was a published article in Circulation, which is the American Heart Association's uh, journal. It's a fantastic journal. Obviously, you can't just get into circulation by just saying I want to publish in circulation. It's peer reviewed multiple articles, but this one was 31.9 years of follow up showing that when you actually put people, you switch them off butter or whatever, it was and put them on seed oils, they actually had a significant reduction in cardiovascular mortality and it was not inflammatory. It wasn't anything. Um, they've subsequently done tons of studies on linoleic acid. That's the one they always talk about. It is not pro-inflammatory. It actually has cardioprotective effects. And in during the holiday season, there was one study that actually showed if through Thanksgiving through uh, January and, and four months later, um, if you actually sub took a little bit of linoleic acid in the morning, uh, seed oil, canola oil, you actually lost weight as opposed to like the rest of the people who would gain weight over the holidays and you maintained it out six months. Um, so there was a lot of this misinformation out there and I didn't think I would have the growth that I did. I put a few videos out there, you know, debunking some of these things and suddenly I went from like 20 followers to like a thousand, then 10,000 and I was really shocked. My kids were like, oh my God, you have 10,000 um, followers, you should do a video thanking them. I said, you know, I'm not like a milestone kind of person that's going to uh, post something saying, hey, I have 10,000 followers. Now it's it's almost 100,000. That was just a few weeks ago. Um, but I think the most important thing, there are a number of other cardiologists on there um, that are putting out good information and good data. Um, and, I, and I have created a list on my uh, uh, playlist, one of them called Doctors to Follow. And I think you're one of the first people I actually put on there. Um, they're not all physicians, but they're all people um, that are science-based, evidence-based, put out good information that's not going to harm you. Uh, in medicine, we were always taught first do no harm. And I know a lot of these people are probably genuine and are not really trying to harm, but they're so lost in the financial incentives or, or lost their medical license and they just want to like sell something or do telemedicine or they suffer from something called Dunning-Kruger uh, effect. And I'm sure you know what that is being a scientist. They discover one little thing like, you know, they'll discover keto. They, they've, they've tried losing weight their whole lives. They've been obese. They, they do keto. 
they end up losing a bunch of weight and now that's it keto is the thing nothing else works we only have to do keto then they publish a book about it and of course you can find evidence that shows keto works because the atkins diet has been around forever and if you and we know if you lose weight all your health markers improve so it's not really the diet itself that's causing it it's the weight loss alone regardless of which macronutrients you emphasize if you lose weight your health markers will improve um, so we've known this since for the longest time, since the, like the 1990s, late 90s, when Atkins was around, they started doing studies on that cholesterol and all those things did improve. Now we know it's because of the weight loss alone, the, the diet itself didn't have any magical powers. And that's been replicated. And we have tons and tons of research now, especially in the last five to, to 10 years. We have so much data on weight loss and diet physiology and what, what diets work and how they work. You know, a long time ago, when I first started giving lectures at medical schools, and and conferences people would ask me well you know what about this and i'd say you know we don't have the data we don't know the answer to that question or they'll say you know what about if you ate this this much and that and you know there'd be lots of questions and we're like you know i don't know we don't have the data on that yet but now we do in the last five to seven years there's been an explosion um, of, of data on diet, nutrition, human physiology, muscle hypertrophy, muscle strength gains. You know, I'm a certified personal trainer too, uh, as well as a cardiologist. I play sports, I coach sports. So I'm, you know, I feel like cardiology meshes, um, with that very, very well, which is kind of one of the reasons why I went into cardiology. Um, but I feel like just seeing what happened on TikTok and how fast, um, my account grew, I feel like there must be a lot of misinformation out there and we have to do our best to combat that information with real data, real science. I always put the studies up behind me and I point out the parts where they're not making sense. Like somebody will cite a study saying, well, look, saturated fat, decreasing saturated fat from 26% of total calories to 18% made no difference. Well, of course not. It doesn't make a difference till it's down to like five, six, seven percent. You know, there's like a, a curve that you follow and then changing saturated fat intake from eight percent of total calories down to five or six. Probably not going to make a huge difference either. There's this inflection point somewhere around the eight to 10 percent mark um, where it actually does make a difference. So a lot of people will use data and publish studies. Um, that make no sense, try to make a name for themselves, the carnivore and the keto diet, people jump on it. Um, and, and none of these people are actually cardiologists. Of course, you probably could find a cardiologist that says similar things. There is lots of low-carb cardiologists. But these people have no background in cardiology, no background in clinical cardiology, how to actually treat people, um, how to get them better, how to get them to live live longer, have healthier lives. Um, they don't have any of that, and they're just like spewing things that make no sense to sell their books, to sell their supplements, to sell their telemedicine, health coaching. Like one of these guys, uh, Barry or something, I forgot what his name was, he he almost lost his medical license a number of times. He's involved in tons of fraud and whatnot, but now he just wants to do telemedicine coaching, um, which I mean, it's okay, but you have to use science and data. And he uses scare tactics like these people. They're basically scaring you from eating anything. Like they go to the grocery store and, and you know, Carnivore MD will put up, oh, don't eat this oat milk and don't eat that and, and don't eat kale. Kale is bad for you. He says it's BS. And he has a list of all these things. He actually sells a shirt that says on it, kale is BS. Um, but they're making a killing, scaring people and giving people food phobias and giving people worse diet culture and worse diet, diet trauma when we should actually be t teaching people, listen, anything truly can be a part of a healthy diet. 
Um, there's no such thing as like one food that is absolutely like deadly. I mean, other than saturated fat, maybe, but even that in small amounts, and if you keep it under five, 6% of total calories, like the American Heart Association recommends, you'll probably be okay. Um, now, if you have super bad genetics and you're a smoker and you're obese and you're hypertensive and you have all these other problems, that's going to be a problem for you. you. We don't want people doing that, but giving people more food phobia. I have so many people in the comments, and I'm sure you see it too, that say, oh my God, what can I eat? I can't eat anything anymore. There's nothing left to eat because every time I see one of these videos from one of these people, um, it, it says I can't eat fruits. I can't eat vegetables. Anyone, you know, in, in the medical conferences, when I give a lecture, I tell them, do this experiment. Go to any bookstore, buy five random diet books, any five books you want. Read the book completely and make, on a piece of paper, write on the paper what you're allowed to eat after reading those five books. And then you, you hold up a white piece of paper that's all that's left. You can't eat anything. One book will tell you never to eat carbs. One book will tell you never to eat protein. One book will tell you never to eat fat. And you read you read everything and you, you end up like throwing your hands up saying, oh, there's really nothing humans are allowed to eat other than air. Um, so that's not healthy. It's a, developing a horrible relationship with food and, and it's just scaring people into these positions that are just un unsustainable and untenable and are not necessary. We don't need to eat like that. So I'm just trying to dispel as many of these uh, myths and things as possible with real science, real evidence, real data. And the problem is a lot of these people are not very smart and it's hard for them to interpret data. So I think that makes, and I'm not talking about the public, I mean the doctors, the doctors that are out there, like Carnivore MD, imagine trying to have a educated scientific discussion with him on actual like hazard ratios and, you know, uh, likelihood ratios and things like that, confidence intervals, he has no clue, he's just going to be, you know, a fish out of water. So it's very difficult also um, to to talk to those kind of people because they they don't have an understanding of science or data, how to analyze it. They don't do journal clubs. They don't do conferences. They've never actually published research themselves. They don't know what a lit search is. Back in my days, before I went to medical school, I did four years in a lab studying rats. We, I did HIV and then liver transplants on rats. You had to do a lit search. This is before PubMed. This is before the internet. This is like we had to go to the library, request the journal, tell the librarian to get it for us, wait a few weeks, get like 30, 100 articles, narrow it down to 30, and then finally read all of them and try to come up with, you know, your thesis. And this kind of stuff now is so easy that anybody can go to PubMed type in some, you know, search that they want and find a couple articles that sort of agree with them. But that's the thing. You can cherry pick articles and come up with something that agrees with you rather than looking at the totality of evidence. I always tell my people at the conferences and, you know, on TikTok or social media everywhere, you have to look at the totality of evidence. One study, I can find you a study that says eating apples will kill you. All right. I'm sure we can. But the totality of evidence says the more apples and fruits you eat, the better, the longer you will live, the healthier you live, the better quality of life you will have and all those kind of things. But people are not generally trained or uh, educated enough to figure that out on their own. They see an influencer or what we call medfluencer now. They see a medfluencer saying something and they just go with it. Oh, he's a doctor. He must be good. You know, they don't know he's a gynecologist or a psychologist or an orthopedic surgeon or whatever it might be. Uh, and they just go with it because they, they just don't know. So that's what I'm trying to do. No, it's, it's very ambitious. I mean, we're up against an algorithm, I guess, that sort of incentivizes cherry picking and creating the more extreme narrative about something, right? As opposed to, to delivering a more nuanced point of view on a particular topic and presenting the totality of the evidence that 
doesn't seem to get as much traction on a lot of, a lot of platforms. That's why I was very pleased to see the work that you're doing. It is, and it is addressing claims head on, many of which I, I want to kind of step through and and get your view on today to, to share with the listeners here. But one, one thing, if, if I can interrupt you, that you, you hit on a point that's very important, nuance. You know, when you ask uh, like a guy like Carnivore MD, what's your take on kill? It's completely bad. There's no, there's no in between. It's either all yes or all no. When you talk to like some of the scientists you've had on your show, they will say something like, you know, in the case of kale, for example, I'm just throwing this out there. You know, if you eat kale with this and that and there's there's a little bit of this and that, then kale is good. In some cases, if it's, you know, processed this way or that way, then it might be a little bit bad. But, you know, people with a LDL of this can eat it. But if they smoke, then they couldn't. Like, I mean, there's lots of nuance that you're just not going to get. But like you said, the algorithms favor First of all, they favor negativity. If you have an extreme viewpoint that's negative, you will get tons and tons of views because people are drawn to that. The watch time will be longer. Um, but if, if, if you're talking to a doctor or a scientist or a researcher or anyone on any of these platforms and you ask them a, a, a question and they don't give you any nuance, they just answer a one-word answer, yes, eat that. <laughs> like, you know, the, and, and the problem with short-form videos, you can't always give a in-depth answer, so it's harder, which is why I have a YouTube channel. I put everything on my YouTube channel, the long, you know, form stuff. But short videos that are really quick and hard and hitting, it's very difficult to get your point across fully with all the nuance and details. So that would be the only thing I would add to that. So how do you feel like you're going? If you were to review kind of your TikTok performance so far, in terms of are you managing to help people change their mind or are you preaching to the converted do you ever kind of think uh, about that and it's something that i grapple with with the content i'm producing am i just speaking to people who are already converted and uh, you know are enjoying this message and i'm reinforcing their beliefs or am i speaking to that person who maybe is on the fence is caught up in some of this messaging um, whether it's from the, the, the carnivore enthusiasts or low-carb enthusiasts and people who are kind of actually open to changing their mind. So I, I feel like there's a little bit of both. When I first started, um, I feel like it was a collection of all different kinds of people. Um, many of them would say things like, oh my God, this guy's a clown. You're supposed to eat red meat and nothing else. And then you'd have a bunch of people say, oh, you know, this guy makes, makes sense. He sounds reasonable. Um, so I think in the beginning when TikTok's trying to find you, your audience, um, you're going to get a mixture of all kinds of things. People will, will troll you and hate you and put bad things on there. I think as the, as you, you know, mature on the algorithm and get, uh, better at it it's better at finding your audience and i think um it depends also on like the hashtags that you use it, it you, the hashtags sort of tell tiktok where to send that video um, but i feel like as time goes on you do have a collection of like super fans most of these people they'll be in there fighting your battles for you like i'll notice somebody will say something to the effect of well you know uh, i'm just gonna eat tons of saturated fat and see what happens your people will come in and say no go back and look at his video on this or they'll go defend you or, or almost protect you almost against people who disagree or, or see you for the first time they're not familiar with your content um, so I feel like it, it, as time progresses, it does find you people that are more similar to you. Um, I think it is one, it is the best outreach platform. I mean, I've been on YouTube since before it was called YouTube. I've been on Facebook since it started. I've been on all these platforms. I've never seen this kind of growth. Um, so I think the algorithm 
YouTube Shorts is trying to copy it. Instagram Reels is trying to copy it. But I, I still think they lag behind. TikTok is any any video, even if you have zero followers, can blow up and have a million views overnight. Um, so I feel like it's it's much more powerful to getting to a new audience and new people. Um, and you'll see how, and I'm sure you've noticed this, it will find you your people, but there always will be a mixture of people also coming in newly and saying, well, if this many people kind of agree and they're all saying the same thing, then maybe it's actually true. So I feel like our message is important and we need to keep saying it over and over and over again. Do you ever think about the kind of demographic or the average age on TikTok? You know, if, if I'm thinking about cardiology, one of the things that I find challenging is to sit down with a younger person and get them to really care about their health in three, four, five decades time. It seems a long way away, right? And I, and I think a, a lot of humans, sadly, wait you know, far too long until it's too late. Um, so how are you kind of finding engaging with younger folks and their interests, I guess, in, what, in their long-term health and sort of delayed, delayed gratification? Most of these platforms start out with the younger teeny bopper crowd and then age up. I think TikTok is aging up. You see a lot of health professionals on there now. You see people in the help industry, accountants, marketers, business people, real estate agents. It, it is starting to age up. Um, my biggest issue is I, there's a lot of population bias. You know, my, my patients are older. They've already had a heart attack. They've already had a stroke. There's no question of, of should they be on a statin or not. I mean, it's it's so it was so odd to me when I first got on here that people actually are questioning whether whether statins are useful. Then I realized, you know, I'm a cardiologist. Most of my patients have had a heart attack or a stroke or open heart surgery or diabetic. They obviously absolutely have to be on a statin. People on TikTok are younger, healthier, probably never had any of these things, can't imagine that they ever would. So they think that they're immune to all this and that, you know, why should I take a pill or a medication? Um, so I think it is aging up. And I think what we are trying to do now is uh, inoculate the masses uh, in a way to hopefully they don't fall for these things. Like when somebody comes out and says, I'm just going to eat a ribeye every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> like, okay, now is fine because you're young and healthy. Give it like 30 to 40 years. Atherosclerosis is not a five to 10 month process. It is a 30 to 40 year process. Your genetics play a role, how you eat plays a role, how active you are plays a role, whether you smoke or not plays a role. The biggest modifiable factor, 50%, well, 49% of uh, your cardiovascular risk or, or for events, mortality, everything is LDL and, and lipids. And that's modifiable. Um, smoking would be next, blood pressure, things like that, you know, obesity. But almost number one without question is lipids. And we can drive them down so low right now with Rapatha and Prolulent, these PCSK9 inhibitors. Um, we can get your LDL to basically almost zero. I mean, I've had patients with like LDLs of like the, their lipid panel will come back zero, 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 or not available, not available, not available, not available. I mean, we can get their cholesterols and LDLs down so low that the current methods of checking it are so low. In fact, one patient last week, uh, not last week, a few weeks ago, had an LDL of negative 10 obviously because it's a calculation. So we sent them for a direct LDL and it ended up being 16, but we can get LDL so low now 
um, that you can almost guarantee without question that they will never have a heart attack uh, or stroke. They may get something else. I mean, everybody dies of something. And, and we know without question on a population basis, if we took everybody in the world and kept their LDLs below, let's say, even just 50, um, we know that people would live longer. Um, from a cardiovascular standpoint, which is the, still the number one killer. So we know that the overall lifespan on the aggregate would increase, but people are still more obese than they ever were, still smoking about the same. It is coming down, but now they're vaping, um, inactive still even more so. Um, even though people are becoming more obese, more inactive, still smoking, we have decreased the incidence of heart rate, the cardiovascular mortality, all because of the technology of the stents and the statins and the new medications. All of that has made a huge difference um, compared to what we could do before. So now with these PCSK9 inhibitors and a lot of the new oral pills, and we have a new one called Inclacerin, which is a twice a year injection. It's almost like a vaccine against heart disease. I was going to do a video about that, actually. Do we now have a CVD uh, vaccine almost? Um, but we can drive people's LDLs down so low now that you almost don't even have to worry uh, about heart disease. But and the and the American Heart Association every year at the conferences we're always debating: should we tell, should we lower the normals? Should we say total cholesterol needs to be under 150 and LDL needs to be under 80? Because that's actually what would really make a huge difference on the population on the aggregate. But the problem is people are going to say, well, you guys are just money hungry and just want to put everybody on statins. No, but statins are all generic now. There's literally no money in it. It's completely generic. Not, there's not a single statin that costs uh, any money. Um, they're all generic. They could technically cost pennies a day. Um, but people are going to say, well, you guys are all in this for the money and you just want this and that. I don't even know why they would say that, but that seems to be a common claim that people say, uh, you doctors are just greedy. You just want to put everyone on statins and, and like all this kind of stuff which obviously is not true but this is this is kind of like the the state of the current evidence data technology stent technology medication technology it's a fantastic time to be alive i think i have many questions on that <laughs> okay in fact i have a long i have a long list of claims and myths that i'd like to to go through with you and and a bunch of them were centered around ldl cholesterol so it probably makes sense for us to, to start there. And some of these were inspired by a video that you did actually, you mentioned Dr. Ken Berry before. Right. And he he put up a video, I think it was about a week or, go, uh, or so ago. Yeah. Uh, someone asked him, they said, I'd had a heart attack or perhaps they'd had a stent put in or two both. Stents. Yes, two stents. And he, he, he seemed to say that they were a perfect candidate to adopt a carnivore diet, so this high saturated fat diet. So, um, I'm I'm curious. You're talking here about the benefits of lowering LDL cholesterol, the known benefits, these different pharmaceutical drugs that we have. Why is there a, a group of folks out there who are encouraging people to eat more saturated fat, to not worry about elevated LDL cholesterol? despite this research existing? Yeah, so I think there's always financial incentives. If you follow the money, a lot of these people, and, and I know there's genuine doctors out there that are not you know, incentivized to do this, and they're just trying, you know, they just don't know. There, there's a category of physicians that just don't know and read something online or followed one of these carnivore guys and just believe it because they just don't know. They don't know how to read research and I need data. They're just clinicians, they're family doctors, whatever. Even cardiologists fall for this stuff too. 
but they're not up to date and they just feel like, you know, yeah, it's true. Maybe we should just all do keto. There are people like this Ken Berry guy who lost, almost lost his medical license in 2016, was put on probation, was under lots of legal financial issues with the IRS and infecting patients with HIV. I don't know. I found like a whole bunch of stuff on him. So he has an, a super high incentive to misinform people and be their health coach um, online. So I, I think part of it is that, plus he has a book to sell called All the Lies That Your Doctor Told You or something like that. But all of that aside, let's say he doesn't have any of that background and he really believes that telling a person who just had two stents put in <laughs> that they need to follow a carnivore diet. I mean, you're, you're telling this person that I'm trying to kill you. I mean, essentially. I mean, if you look at all the data, and I put it all in that video, there's a direct line between saturated fat intake, and it goes straight up. CVD mortality on this side, uh, saturated fat intake on this side, it's a straight line to CVD mortality. The more saturated fat intake you eat, the higher the cardiovascular mortality, but not just mortality, event rates, non-fatal MIs, he will get another heart attack and need more stents. Fatal MIs, he could die, obviously we said that one. Strokes that don't kill you. Um, peripheral artery disease, carotid disease. I mean, there's so many things that are intertwined giving people advice like this. And, and especially being so like, like he's so like, like, I don't know. He just believes it so much. He's, he's like, so thinks that this is like the solution to everything. Like this guy just had a heart attack. You're literally telling a person that just had a heart attack and had two stents placed that he needs to increase his saturated fat intake. I mean, to me, that's just mind blowing. I don't know. Like that is like, you should be put in jail. That's insane to tell someone here's more ways to kill yourself. That, that, that would be the equivalent of telling this guy, you need to start smoking three packs a day. I mean, that's essentially what he's saying, um, that you just had a heart attack, you just had stents, or you just had a stroke, and you, they did a blood clot, you know, a thrombectomy in your brain, you need to pick up smoking. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know how you can get away with this, and it's considered okay. I mean, it's a direct line between LDL, saturated fat intake and cardiovascular mortality. There's no study in the history of mankind that has shown that red meat intake actually reduces cholesterol. Not one. You can argue other things. Sure. And there's nuance and we can discuss that. But no study has ever shown that increasing red meat intake reduces cholesterol. Um, so that I don't know where and why he's saying things like this. It just literally makes no sense whatsoever. I think his argument, if he was here, um, and Ken, if you're listening, I'd be happy to host you at any point in time. But if he was here, I think his argument that he would, he would, make here is that he doesn't believe LDL cholesterol is a problem if someone is metabolically healthy, if their triglycerides and, and HDL ratio is good, if they're insulin sensitive. You know, not that the majority of, of the public are that, but I think his point is that LDL cholesterol is only something that people should worry about if they are metabolically unhealthy. Yeah, they keep saying that. The carnivore guys, uh, Sean Baker, Carnivore MD, all these people keep saying the same thing, that if you're not metabolically healthy. So I guess we'd ask them, what is your, they, they define metabolically healthy as not insulin resistant. Well, 90% of the population of the world, the US and most of the world, is not diabetic and is not pre-diabetic. So 90% of people are not insulin resistant. Now, yes, if you are insulin resistant and you have metabolic syndrome, for example, um, 
the metabolic syndrome, for those who don't know, is all is all of the worst things you could possibly have. Your diet, your diet, your your blood sugars, or you're pre-diabetic, you're obese, you have you know trunkal obesity, um, your HDL is low, your LDL is high, your triglycerides are high. You know all of those things, waist circumference. You have all of the worst possible confounders uh, or comorbidities. Um, those are what we call metabolic syndrome. So those people are at higher risk without question. Um, but trying to, and, and here's, he's, they are claiming that LDL in these people, if you're not, if you don't have any of that, that LDL in those people doesn't make a difference. But if you look at the research and the data, they control for confounders. They control for BMI. They control for diabetics. They control for A1C. They control for lipids, insulin resistance. I mean, they measure C-peptide. You know, they measure insulin. They measure all of that in the studies. Researchers are not dumb. They don't just say, let's take people with metabolic syndrome and compare them to people without metabolic syndrome and see what happens. I mean, who who does that? Um, but almost all of the studies, when you look at it, they have a breakdown and subgroup analysis. Of course, if you're diabetic, it's worse. And if you're a smoker, it's worse. And if you're older, uh, it could be worse. And if your waist circumference is over 40 for men and 35 for women, it could be worse. And that's why we have all these criteria. But to say that LDL is okay um, in people who are metabolic. Like, like I'll give you an example, people with familial hypercholesterolemia. I have teenagers, not my own, but I have patients that are teenagers that have this. Um, their cholesterols are uh, in the five, six, seven, eight hundred. One patient I had was a thousand. His cholesterol was nine ninety eight, um, and their LDLs are three to five, six hundred as well. If we don't treat these people, and I've seen them later on, I've, I have thirty five year olds that have had quintuple bypass because they didn't know they had this problem. But if you if you look at non-insulin and, and they're super athletes, I mean these are lean individuals, athletic, eat healthy, are not out of shape, they don't have any of these confounders, we know what happens to them. They get to, by age 30, 35, they will have heart attacks, strokes, open heart surgery, whatever it is. I mean, those studies have been done too. But all the studies done on LDL and saturated fat and all this, it takes into account all of that. There's no study that says, let's take metabolically unhealthy people and compare them to metabolically healthy people and see if there's a and, and produce an outcome like that they they can they control for all the confounders obesity all of that so those claims are just to sell whatever fantasy story they're trying to sell their people and and for the carnivore guy he's trying to sell you organs <laughs> organ supplements makes a hundred million dollars a year selling them just but but he has to keep this you know story going he has to stick to his narrative otherwise people won't buy his stuff. I mean, he tells you, well, the only way to live is to eat a lot of carnivore organ meat. This is how our ancestors live. You got to eat lots of, you know, meat. And oh, if you don't want to eat raw testicles, don't worry about it. I got a pill for you. Like no one's going to eat raw testicles. That's just insane. But he'll sell you a pill and you may want to do that. Or raw liver, for example, who's going to eat raw liver? Probably no one. It's nasty. It's disgusting. It's not palatable. Humans are, are just not going to eat it. But if we put it in a pill and you eat it that way, it's more palatable, more tolerable. You may buy those pills and, and do that. So he has to keep the narrative going on that this is the way to live because this is what our ancestors did. And that this is, you know, and, and if you don't want to do it that way, I'll sell you a little pill that does it for you. So I think there's that. Yeah, I think it's a pretty clever marketing funnel. Um, we can give him that. And and just on, on what our ancestors ate, I might remind listeners, Burn by Herman Ponser, which is, I know, a book that you've spoken about as well, is a, a fabulous read if you want to actually get some some high-quality information about 
uh, anthropology and evolution and diet and, and all that all that sort of good stuff there. Just on LDL cholesterol a little bit, let's go a little bit deeper here. I think that Ken Berry, et cetera, might push back a little bit again. And I've heard them say something along the lines of, um, you know, genetically elevated LDL cholesterol. So what you're talking about there with familial hypercholesterolemia and these people who have genetically elevated LDL cholesterol who go on, if they're untreated, they can develop heart disease you know, very early in life. Um, I've seen them argue that the mechanism by which LDL is increased and the type of LDL matters, and if you're adopting a, a sort of low-carb, uh, high-saturated-fat diet and you're metabolically healthy, you have this large, fluffy LDL particles which are not atherogenic or as atherogenic as the small dense particles something that I know that you and I have spoken about but can you can you perhaps help sort of clarify this for anyone who's sort of caught up in that confusion so before we get deep into that still without question higher LDL regardless if it's small or big or fluffy or not fluffy it's atherogenic. I mean, the the Mendelian, I, I think Ferenc actually published a study recently. I think it was maybe 2020 or 2021. Ferenc published a study showing that LDL, based on Mendelian genetics, um, which eliminates almost all confounders, and you can't really argue with it because it's a fantastic way to prove something, showed that LDL in and of itself causes atherosclerosis. Um, so I don't know that we need to delve into the details, but in the past, we, researchers would fractionate uh, people's lipid panels and see if they have smaller LDL particles. We thought those were more atherogenic, and if they had more HDL, which is high-density lipoprotein, and they're all the same lipoprotein. Some are just very low density, some are higher density, some are not so high density, whatever it is. you know, It just has to do with how big or small they are. They, they found that people with smaller LDL, which are the atherogenic type, have more LDL because there's more of them. So still, whether you fractionate it or not, LDL by itself, and, and if you want to use ApoB too, that's fine, um, but LDL or ApoB, without question, raises your event risk, mortality, heart attack, stroke, all of that, more, more plaques um, without question. So I don't think that we even need to get that deep into it. I think I sent you an article recently called you know, LDL particle size, is there anything new under the sun? Those were all studies that are, you know, good for research, good for labs, maybe good for targeting certain, L, you know, if we want to target the ApoB, you know, with, with you know, mRNA viruses maybe in the future or something, or like, you know, kind of like how we did the uh, LDL receptors um, with PCSK9. But um, those are all good for research and, and great, and, and it's it's valid, it's true to a certain extent. But at the end of the day, when I go to see my doctor or you go to see your physician, they order a lipid panel, they're not doing a fractionated lipid panel. First of all, it's more expensive. It has become more widely available. Back when I was a fellow, you had to pay $600 to get it done, and now labs do it for like 30 or 40 bucks, no big deal. But still, what more value is it adding You know, to outcomes? We know... And then, and then the, the first part you mentioned about people with familial hyperlipidemia, hypercholesterolemia, it depends on if they're polygenic or monogenic. We know that people with monogenic 
it's worse. So you, so you, so they may argue. Ken Berry and these guys might say, "Well, you know, I know somebody with familial hypercholesterolemia. And he's sixty years old, never had a heart attack or quintuple bypass. Well, he may have been polygenic, um, or you know, a heterozygous, or, or maybe he was misdiagnosed because his LDL was above the level, but he was on this high saturated fat diet. Because nobody wants genetic testing for familial hypercholesterolemia. Why?" because uh, you'll be labeled that and you can't get life insurance. It's very difficult. So we don't want to always genetically test that. But if your LDL is above 190, we pretty much assume that you have it and we treat it down until you stop eating saturated fat, you know, all that kind of stuff. But um, so there is going to be some people with familial hypercholesterolemia, the more polygenic ones or the heterozygous ones, um, they're not going to have it as bad. But if you have the worst form of it, you're not going to make it to 35 without some major event. And the sooner we get you treated, the better. So regardless, we have to treat them anyway. So, you know, diving into the nuance of it is fun and academic. And we do that at cardiology conferences all the time. But to an average person trying to feed them all this mumbo jumbo, overly healthy, sciencey stuff to make them feel like it's okay to have a high LDL and eat carnivore, to confuse them because, well, you know, your triglycerides are low and your HDL is high and your particles are fluffy and like you're making it sound like it's okay to eat all this stuff. And it's not. Um, the, if you went on the aggregate, like if the American Heart Association or the USRDA or the Australian government was proposing or Canada, whoever, they're proposing a new way of eating. You can't propose a new way of eating that will kill 10 to 15, 20 percent of your people and, you know, might be good for the rest. You have to put something where the common denominator is everyone um, so that you give people the highest likelihood chance to maximize their genetics in terms of longevity, quality of life, assuming they do everything right. You can maximize their genetic potential of living a healthy and good life. So that would be my response to that. It's it's good for research. It's fun. We get to look at cool little, you know, LDL particles and fractionate it. We used to use NMR for it in the past. But it's not that helpful clinically. I've never once ordered it on my patients. I look at their LDL. I know exactly what to do. Um, ApoB is also kind of rare to check because it's also a, a more expensive test and patients aren't going to pay for it. But, but it pretty much tracks directly with LDL. So whether it's, you know, ApoB is obviously the more atherogenic part of LDL, but it tracks with LDL almost perfectly. There's nobody that has... Uh, an LDL of 200 and an ApoB of zero or like two or three, they go together. The higher the LDL, the more likely you have higher ApoB as well. So it's much easier to say to people, hey, listen, your LDL is over 130. Um, we need to get that down. There, you know, it's not like a lot of debate uh, on that topic and they know it. So it's much easier to stop confusing people um, and just say, listen, we know at LDL below 57, nothing bad will happen. But, uh, you know, when they go and hear these videos and they hear these people talking and they get confused, you're almost justifying a carnivore style diet to like fool people into eating it because of all the crazy sciencey stuff that we're throwing out at you. So I don't know. Yeah. There's a lot of mental gymnastics. Um, but the Brian Ferentz paper that you mentioned, I'll put that into the show notes. That is a, a good one. If someone, a clinician or someone listening wanted to kind of deep dive. And as you said, they, they go through in that paper and, and they talk about the fact that all LDL particles, regardless of their size are atherogenic. They're small enough to penetrate the intimer and become, uh, retained. Um, what about non HDL? So sometimes I hear, um, I've heard a few different uh, folks, I think P- Peter Atia on his show 
uh, spoken about non-HDL. Is there a subset of people if they have diabetes where ApoB and LDL can become a little bit discordant and is is non-HDL something that you ever use? So, so non-HDL comes with every lipid panel. You, it, it's basically your total cholesterol, let's say it's 200, your HDL is 40, subtract 40 out of it, you get the remaining 160. It also tracks very well with LDL. It almost tracks exactly with it. There's no one that has a high LDL, assuming you do a, a direct measurement, but most of them are calculated. But if your LDL is 130, you're not going to have a, a non-HDL of 5 or 6 or 10 or 20. They, they track very closely. It is more predictive usually, um, and the studies that they've done on that do show that it is actually a, a little bit more. Um, it depends on the study. Obviously, they go back and forth, but they do track very closely. So if you want to use non-HDL, that's acceptable too. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. And you can treat that down as well. Um, but when you treat non-HDL down, it's basically a way of saying, because we used to assume that HDL is good for you, right? It's not as atherogenic as all the other particles, VLDL, LDL, whatnot. So if we take out all of those and we just look at the anything that's non-HDL, that's everything else. So that's why they were using that for a time. And it, it works. It tracks pretty closely with uh, LDL. So we can use that. It's okay. It doesn't really change much. Okay. Earlier, you mentioned you have some patients where you get their LDL cholesterol down to super low levels. Now, another claim that often comes up is that, well, that that can't be healthy. We need cholesterol for the production of hormones. It's important for our brain health. Um, and even sometimes people going as far to point to observational studies, which these folks seem to not like most of the time, but then sometimes they, they find one they do like. And often they'll point to one where the people in the study, in that cohort, who had been followed over a certain period of time, those who had the lowest cholesterol had the highest risk of dying during that study follow-up period. Is there anything to be concerned with with regards to lowering your LDL cholesterol? So I, I posted a video about this where we, we've driven people's cholesterols down to like 0.2 uh, millimoles, well, or in ours, like six or a seven. Um, and they fought, and now because we have Rapatha and these kind of medications, we can actually get LDLs pretty much very close to zero. Um, and and they followed these people out on Rapatha and these type of medications, the highest dose tolerable statin, plus Rapatha, plus Zetia, plus whatever it is, to get their LDLs below like 15. Um, and these these people had no adverse outcomes. Like we always used to tell people in fellowship, and this is way before Rapatha. This is like 2009, maybe. We used to tell people that, look, a newborn child who needs the most cholesterol, a fetus, a newborn in the first year of life, who needs the most cholesterol to make myelin, to make neurons, to make uh, phospholipid bilayers in their cell membranes, and you know to create all these neuronal connections in their first few weeks of life to years of life, they have cholesterols and LDLs of like 20, 30, maybe 40 at the most. Um, so we know that's not dangerous, um, but we've never been able to drive adults' numbers that low. Once adults, especially cardiac cardiac patients, I mean, they're more prone to this, obviously, um, because of lifestyle choices, genetics, whatever predispositions cause them to become a cardiac patient. We've never been able to get their LDLs that low, but now we can uh, because of the the um, 
you know, medication technology and whatnot has improved so much that we can get people's LDLs, I mean, as close to zero as you'd like. Um, and we filed them out. There's no increases in dementia. There's no increases in uh, brain bleeds or hemorrhagic strokes or, you know, all these claims that these people make. Your body can make cholesterol if you need high, and, and, the, and their testosterone is not lower. Like, you know, they've tested all of this. If you are worried that it's going to drop your testosterone or you need it for hormones or you need it for cell membranes or you need it in your brain, first of all, circulating uh, cholesterol has nothing to do with your brain's cholesterol. That's a totally different thing. It doesn't cross into your brain. Um, so that's like a myth too, that they always try to say, well, your brain needs cholesterol. Well, sure, but it already has it. Um, but we've been able to drive people's cholesterols down so low and there've been no adverse outcomes. Um, they also try to claim that people with the lowest cholesterol levels naturally, uh, do worse. They, they have higher all-cause mortality. Well, those people are super malnourished. These are very cachexic cancer patients, COPDers have no muscle mass, no body fat. They're laying in a nursing home on their deathbed. Their LDLs are like 0, 10, 5 because they're so malnourished. They're like taking somebody and starving them to death. They're protein calorie malnourished. They have almost no muscle mass, no strength, no anything. They can barely eat. They're on TPN, usually tube feeds or whatever it is. Those people, that's a marker for severe, severe chronic illness. You can't compare those people um, to healthy individuals that we drive their LDLs down. Um, so I think there's a lot of confounding factors. And of course, in, in studies, they have control for that. They've taken out people with severe disease because they're not stupid. Again, researchers are pretty smart. Um, we have taken those severely malnourished, you know, bad, you know, chronic disease people out of it. And there's no bad outcomes at very, very low levels. So that would be kind of the way to think about it for those people. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. 
My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Okay, so we don't need to be concerned about low cholesterol from the perspective of hormone production or brain health. Let's say we're someone who has not had a cardiovascular event, but we're listening right now to to everything you're saying and we want to know, okay, well, what LDL should I target as optimal if I'm really wanting to optimize for longevity? And at what stage, if, if someone couldn't get to that optimal level through lifestyle changes, at what stage would you consider pharmacotherapy? So it, it depends on what risk factors you have. If you've had a heart attack, stroke, or diabetes, we consider those the highest risk, risk factor. Those people absolutely have to be on a statin. And the reason is statins have shown mortality data. For the longest time, none of the other medications have shown mortality data, like Zetia, for example. But we know lowering LDL should eventually lead to mortality data, but it became generic, so nobody wants to study it long term and put some money behind it and say, well, look. So it's going to be studies going forward. Um, we have a lot of that data now. Um, but the, the question becomes, what risk factors do you have? So we know if you have had a heart attack, stroke, uh, or uh, diabetes, your LDL needs to be under 70. And we know for every 38 uh, point reduction in LDL, you have your risk, um, your cardiovascular risk, you cut it in half. Every 38 point reduction um, in your guys' um, millimoles, I think it's one and a one, one, one. It's actually for every one point reduction, you have your risk. Um, but um, now, let's say we take a young person, young person, pretty healthy, nothing going on. Their LDL is like 135, 140. They can do all the lifestyle mod modifications, try to get their LDL down on their own, which in most cases should work because most young people are not cognizant of reducing saturated fat, more fiber, more fruit, stop smoking, you know, all that, the, the, the stuff we usually tell them to do. There's, there's a list of about 10 or 12 different things we can tell them to do. Um, so soluble fiber, even plant sterols, stanols, things like that. Um, basically adopting a more Mediterranean style diet, um, plus taking, plus activity, plus stop smoking, all that. So you can lower your cholesterol. If you just reduce saturated fat by about 10% in the top, like the, the top bracket in studies reduced it 15 to 16%, just saturated fat. You stack on a few of these other things like get more active, lose weight, no smoking, eat more fruits, more fibers, whatever, you can get an additional maybe 10 to 20% reduction somewhere in that range without even any medications still. 
Um, so young, healthy people with, with, you know, one risk factor or not very many risk factors at all, you don't have to start a statin right away. You can try this first. Now, this is obviously, we're not talking about familial hypercholesterolemia or whatnot, but the people in between those two extremes are the ones that are going to like, like we know if you have already CAD, you have to be on a statin and you have to drive it down as low as possible. We know that if you're young and healthy, you try all the lifestyle stuff. You don't need to be on a statin. We could probably get away with nothing. Um, it's the people in between those two extremes that are the issue. These are, let's say, a 30 to 55-year-old, used to smoke, a little bit obese, maybe has hypertension now, and pre-diabetic. That's where the finessing comes in. If their LDL is above 130, I would want them to obviously still do all the lifestyle things, get your weight down, you know, all that stuff. But we want to try to get those people to under 100 usually. Obviously, the more the, the the higher risk people, we want them under seventy. But the guidelines till today say under under a hundred. Me personally, I would want most people under a hundred, and then the more higher risk people, that middle group under eighty, and then the highest risk group under sixty. Um, that would be my personal preference. But of course, it's hard convincing the American Heart Association and all these organizations like the American Diabetes Association, everyone to like lower the standards or lower the targets. Because there's going to be a lot of pushback there. People are just going to say, well, then we're going to put everyone on statins. We're going to put everyone on Rapatha. We're going to put everyone on Pempoic acid. We're going to put everyone on whatever, Zeti or Ezenemib or whatever. But you, you, so that, I mean, that's technically what the guidelines say. We generally agree with it, but I feel like our targets definitely need to be lower because you can capture more of the population. Um, but, but then you also end up putting more people on statins that probably don't need to be on it anyways. So it's a, it's a delicate balance between protecting the most amount of people as you can, and also not putting people on medications that they don't necessarily need to be. So it's that kind of a thing that we're, we're trying to balance when we're trying to decide where to set the targets uh, for these things. It's a little bit tricky in, in that regard. But the two extremes are easy to figure out. And I think that's a really good reminder. What you said there about lowering saturated fat could help you reduce your LDL cholesterol by around 16%, I think you said. The highest, the, the best groups in the studies, 16 to 18%, but the vast majority around 10. And then when you couple it with all of these other diet uh, aspects of your diet and lifestyle, you could get a sort of 30% reduction in your LDL cholesterol. So if you were sitting at, say, 130, you could probably get that just below 100, sub 100, with, with a sort of holistic approach to to lifestyle modification you mentioned pre-diabetes there as a risk factor and we know that type 2 diabetes increases the risk of cardiovascular disease what is it about pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes that raises the risk of cardiovascular disease so I don't know that it's completely understood, but it's endothelial dysfunction. You have an endothelium, which for most people, that's the inside of your arteries. There's dysfunction there, and it's it's causing little shearing and little tears, sort of like high blood pressure. Most of those d diseases go together, high blood pressure and diabetes generally, you know, uh, kidney disease. You have high blood pressure. You're, you're pounding inside the arteries. You're shearing the arteries. You have high blood sugars, which is, you know, tearing up the inside of your organs, you know, from your retinas all the way down to your kidneys. Um, and you have this inflammatory milieu 
going on in the endothelium in your arteries and it just causes arterial placking way, way sooner than we would normally see it. So a lot of times we have to treat down the pre-diabetics to get, you know, if they have really high triglycerides. The number one thing that, that I see when somebody has really high triglycerides is they're either diabetic or pre-diabetic and just don't know it yet. Um, so a lot of times we'll start them on metformin, diabetes medications to also help, you know, we can, we've done, uh, there are medications that make your triglycerides look prettier phenofibrate, fish oil we used to think does that, but they'll make your triglycerides look prettier, but we're not treating the underlying issue, which is the prediabetes or uncontrolled diabetes or whatnot. So we found that like with metformin and some of these other medications, if you get their blood sugars down and statins, obviously you won't have to worry that much about their triglycerides because it'll come down to normal range. Now there are some people who genetically have hypertriglyceridemia. These are in the six, seven, eight hundred thousand range. That's a totally different issue. We're not talking about that now. Um, but for the vast majority of people treating the underlying prediabetes or diabetes, but again, that's only like nine to maybe 12% of the population worldwide, uh, that is diabetic. So it's not the majority of, uh, lipid panels that we see. Okay. I want to talk to you about cardiac imaging and I have, I have a, uh, screenshot in front of me. This is a, a tweet from Dr. Sean Baker. Um, I think he might have actually had his medical license stripped off of him, but, but his Twitter profile suggests he is a doctor, so maybe he got it back. Um, but he did a recent tweet. It says, new 2023 study, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. High LDL does not increase your risk for heart disease if you have a zero coronary artery calcium score. This is one that we hear quite a bit. If you go and get a coronary artery calcium score and it's zero, do not worry about your skyrocket high LDL level. How do you feel about that? So this is not uh, actually true. A, the calcium CT scanner cannot see soft plaques. The majority of heart attacks and strokes are caused by soft plaques rupturing. If you look at the artery that I have here, the yellow part, um, the yellow parts in here are the soft plaques. These are what rupture and cause heart attacks and stroke. Calcified uh, plaques generally don't uh, rupture. And the reason we put people on statins is to calcify their, their plaques so that they don't rupture. And even exercise has been shown to cause soft plaques to calcify. And the issue with, with calcium too is it's in the arterial wall usually, the red part here or on the outside. It doesn't always encroach on the lumen. We've had people with calcium scores of three, 4,000 or even over 1,000 and we do a coronary angiogram and the lumen is open and they don't need stents. We've had people with calcium scores of zero who have a massive heart attack uh, because a soft plaque ruptured, occluded, and you end up with a plugged up artery. I mean, I have the a little another artery model here showing that. You have a soft plaque, it ruptures, you get platelets, thrombin, fibrinogen, and whatnot, and then you end up with a completely plugged up lumen and a massive ST elevation MI. Um, the article that he's talking about was not a very well done study, and the researchers themselves didn't agree with the conclusion. It was, it was a four-year median follow-up which is not a lot. And the longest people in the study were 16 years, which is still not a lot. Coronary vascular disease is a 30 to 40 year process. Now you can accelerate it by eating carnivore, saturated fat, and all these things. If you want to have it sooner, you can do that. But for the vast majority of Americans eating a standard American diet, it's a 30 to 40 year process. That's why I wish I could see my patients in their 20s so that I don't have to see them when they're 60 and now having stents and heart attacks and strokes and whatnot. So even if you if you actually read the study that he actually posted himself, 
um, the conclusions that the authors uh, reached were not that uh, solid. They they themselves said that, you know, we if you have really high LDL and your calcium scores is zero, it's a little bit protective, which fine. I mean, that makes sense. That's like saying if you smoked your entire life and we do a CT scan of your chest and we don't find pulmonary nodules, you're probably okay. Sure, that's absolutely true. Um, but a lot of these people have this false sense of security when their LDL is 300. Like I had a kid post uh, an, a video that I did on uh, a video with on TikTok. He said, my LDL is 300, my calcium score is zero. Am I okay? No, you are not okay. An LDL of 300 is insane. Um, an LDL 300 is going to cause you to have placking everywhere. We know that even people with normal LDLs, like 100-ish, 110, half of those people, 45% technically, uh, already have atherosclerosis and 60% of them have it in more than one bed. It's just not encroaching on the lumen. It's just not causing symptoms yet. It hasn't uh, burst and caused uh, an MI or a stroke. So it makes no sense to tell these people, well, just go get a calcium score. First of all, the calcium CT scan score it was invented by Dr. Agastin. That's why we call it Agastin units. Dr. Agastin is a cardiologist from South Beach, Florida in the 2000s. He actually uh, wrote the book, The South Beach Diet, because he didn't like Atkins' book. Atkins was just like, eat all the tons of protein you want and you lose weight. Don't eat carbs. He's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. You're eating tons of saturated fat. Why don't we make it so that you're eating healthier, leaner meat and you're still doing Atkins' diet, but a leaner, you know, less saturated fat version of it, which is great. He's a cardiologist, smart guy. It took almost 30 years for the American Heart Association and the, and the American College of Cardiology to add the CT scan calcium score to the guidelines. And it's a 2B recommendation. For those who are into the science, that's not a very strong recommendation. A 1A recommendation means like, yes, you have to do it. Everybody should be on it. Everybody should get the scan done, whatever. It's not. It's 2B. It means eh, if you want to do it, do it. If not, not. Like It adds no value. Like for me personally, if somebody comes and tells me their calcium score is zero or 3,000, it's not going to change how I approach them. I had a guy who came to me. He did his own calcium scan. You could pay for it and do it yourself. His LDL was 3,000. His uh, calcium scan was 3,000. And he and he had no symptoms, no chest pain, no dyspnea on exertion, absolutely nothing, was totally fine. And I would not order a cardiac angiogram on him. Later, he goes and sees another cardiologist, and they do something. They do a cardiac angiogram, and he's totally fine. The 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 stress test, If it, we, it, we, I, I was going to do a stress test on him. A stress test can show plugged up arteries that are about 50% or more. And like, if you look at the model again here, um, just for, you know, people who are visual, this is about the bottom one here is about a 10, 15% occlusion. This one's like maybe closer to 30 or 40. And this one here is about a 50% occlusion. If you do a stress test, 50% occlusions or higher, usually 50 or 60% will show up, but we don't stent anything unless it's over 70. So you're not going to have symptoms if it's not occluding uh, the lumen. And a lot of times the calcium does not occlude the lumen. And a lot of times it's actually protective. If we put you on statins and your arteries calcify or the, the plaques calcify, they're not going to rupture. So I don't know um, the utility of it. It took almost 30 years for the American Heart Association to say, okay, you can use a calcium score. And and, and it, they gave very specific parameters. They said, if you have a person that's on the borderline of needing a statin or not, you can use a calcium score to decide should we put them on a uh, statin. Or let's say I have a young person, 30 years old, <clears throat> no other risk factors, and their LDL is like 140. And you're trying to decide if we should put them on a statin go get a CT scan. If their calcium scores above 100, okay, we'll put you on the stand, drive you down to under 100 or something like that, and you'll be fine. But in no way, shape, or form did they say that if your LDL is 300, 
and you do a CT scan and your and your calcium score is zero, no, that means you're totally fine. That is not how that um, test was designed or used for. You are giving people a false sense of security, and it's really shameful um, that 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 happened. But it's a new study, so you know people get excited about it. But like I said, four years of follow up is nothing in the progression of atherosclerosis. It's a thirty to forty year process that that doesn't really tell us very much mm -hmm. so these young folks online who might be in their 20s i've seen some of them or 30s who are posting a coronary artery calcium score of zero the important thing and i'm just sort of summarizing a lot of what you just said there is that calcification if i'm understanding this correctly seems to be part of the sort of late stage of this disease process so if you're a young person in your 20s or 30s then it's normal most people won't have calcification there but that doesn't mean you you are not building up this soft plaque within the artery right and we know from autopsies on vietnam war veterans and others that they already have atherosclerosis even 20 year olds that came back dead from wars um, they came back with plaque. And we know fetuses, if the mom has very high uh, LDL and very high cholesterol, fetuses already have fatty streaks in their aortas. I mean, it's not uh, a question of do you have it or not? It's just a matter of when. Everybody has atherosclerosis to a certain degree, unless you're one of these genetically gifted people with the LDL receptor knockout gene, which is how we discovered PCSK9. Some of these blue zones, not all of them, some of them have been questioned, but some of them, people have a gene mutation where they have almost no LDL. They have the most centurions. People who live over 100 years, they have the most of them in their villages or cities because they have no LDL um, or very, very low LDL. We're talking like 10, 15, 16, 20 at the most. So um, I think that uh, all has to be taken into account. You cannot simply say my LDL is super high, but my calcium score is zero. That means I'm good. That That's really bad advice. It's You're not good at all. You're actually probably going to go eat more carnivore and more saturated fat and give yourself way earlier CAD than you should. Yeah, is that something that you forecast you know, with with the number of people who are adopting a, a carnivore diet um, it is definitely trending on social media platforms and um, you know I, I just wonder what is the what's the kind of medium to long-term outcome of this you know with the number of 20 year olds doing this now when they're 40 or early 50s you know what will we see I think we're going to see, you know, deaths from heart disease have been going down over the years. I think we're going to see an uptick. Uh, I think it depends on, I don't know how many people are actually really doing this or they're just saying they're doing it. You know, a lot of people on social media will just put a big plate of meat on and say, oh, look what I'm eating today. But they don't actually really eat like that. It's just for the Instagram or whatever. Um, but if they're, if people are actually doing this in the future, we are going to see a huge uptick of strokes, heart attacks, peripheral artery disease, aortic aneurysms, abdominal aortic aneurysms, thoracic aneurysms. Like we're going to see a huge uptick in all of that. I don't know how much. It just depends on um, how many people are doing this. But there's it's guaranteed in, in 20 years or so maybe 30, that you are going to see this if you continue to do this. Because we know lifetime exposure to LDL is what causes more, like before we even knew that it, the LDL directly causes atherosclerosis, right? That was more recent. But we knew before that the lifetime exposure to LDL is what causes 
atherosclerosis. So the longer you're exposed to these high LDLs, the more plaquing you have, the more soft plaques, the more eventually calcified plaques, the more of this you're going to have over time. And it's just a matter of time. You just have to wait it out. Now, if they get on statins right away from now and whatnot, they could probably prevent that. But there's no, it makes no sense to eat tons of saturated fat and then take statins. Like that's like some of my patients are like, now that I'm on Lipitor 80, can I eat cheeseburgers? <laughs> That's not what we were thinking when we put you on a statin, but you probably could get away with more, but that's not a good idea because it causes other issues, the, all the other inflammatory, you know, milieu and obesity and everything else. Yes. We don't want people doing that, do we? Um, calcification. The, the other question that I've got there is, and this is kind of a little bit of a, a sidestep here. I've seen some studies looking at endurance athletes, athletes who, who chalk up a lot of miles or, or kilometers who seem to, when compared to sort of age-matched individuals, seem to have greater calcification in their, in their arteries. Now, you mentioned before that calcification can be protective and can sort of stabilize. Is that something for endurance athletes to worry about? Is there sort of a level of exercise where it becomes too much and then it, it damages the arteries. How do you kind of feel about that? So there have been studies on extreme marathoners and extreme endurance athletes. They have more rates of cardiac arrhythmias. Um, they have more rates of atrial fibrillation. They have more dilated uh, heart chambers, mainly because they need to adapt to the endurance. So they do need, they do have thicker hearts and bigger heart uh, chambers, but they, they do have more calcified arteries. Their coronary, cal their coronary artery calcium score actually goes up. There's a, I think, I believe the last paper I saw was a 27% increase in coronary artery calcification. Now we don't know if it's calcifying because they're because it's like taking a statin and it's making it's protecting you because now you're exercising so that should reduce your overall mortality which it does um or it's just you're producing more plaque and, and more of it is eventually calcifying you have more soft plaque and eventually it's calcifying because the shear you know when you're an endurance athlete the shearing and the you know the differences between the high high blood pressures and diastolic pressures you're getting a lot of shearing and if your arteries aren't as compliant especially in older athletes normally when you're when you're young your arteries are way more compliant and pliable as you get older that elasticity goes away and if you're doing these extreme sports whether it's powerlifting or, or endurance sports especially um, extre especially extreme endurance maybe you're shearing and causing more wall damage and you're starting with more soft plaque and the older ones are calcifying because you're actually getting some cardio protection we know that overall endurance and cardio and aerobic exercise is protective except in the case of like these extreme marathoners um, where it actually isn't. There is more cardiac, sudden cardiac death in extreme marathoners too compared to age-matched uh, cohorts who do lighter exercise or other things. So I don't know that we have a final answer on that one, but those are all uh, mechanisms that we're throwing around trying to understand. Okay. And I should have asked this earlier, but when while we're on cardiac imaging, you did mention CT angiogram. And the other one that often comes up is the carotid intima media thickness test, sort of ultrasound um, test. When, when would it be indicated or, or when would you recommend a CT angiogram or a carotid intima media thickness test over a, a coronary artery calcium scan? So a CT angiogram is different. We actually look inside the lumen of the arteries. We inject dye, we time it correctly. We can actually see inside the lumen. 
we can tell, um, especially these newer high resolution ones, we can actually even see soft plaque, which is nice. Um, but we can tell if there's like a 50% LED blockage, kind of like the, you know, in the, in the artery here. If your artery is plugged up 50%, like, like in this scenario here, we can actually see that and tell you exactly, and I read those, we can actually see that in, in the imaging and tell you, hey, look, you got a 50%, maybe 60% LED. You might want to be on a statin or whatnot, take it easy, and we'll, you know, eventually you will do a stress test or whatnot to, because a stress test is a functional test. These are not really functional. You need a functional test to tell if that, and I, maybe we're getting too sciencey, but a functional test will tell you if that uh, occlusion is enough to cause symptoms. So if we put you on a treadmill, and we have you jog, if you're starting to feel squeezing chest pain and your EKG changes, and, and when we perfuse you with the imaging, we see a difference between the uptake in that area, then we know that functionally that lesion is significant, even though it looked like only 60% on the CT scanner. Whereas um, if we do just a CT scan itself and you have no symptoms and no nothing, we really wouldn't do a functional test. We wouldn't order a stress test. Um, so I think that the different imaging modalities all help to um, come up with a picture. The nice thing about a CT angio is it's quick, 45 seconds, maybe a minute. We get a pretty good picture of your coronaries, the inside of the lumen, how they course. Do they like, you know, there's, there's, there's sometimes a case where you can have an anomalous coronary artery. If the uh, left, left main, for example, passes between the aorta and the pulmonary artery. When you exert yourself, they dilate and they crush the left main or LAD or RCA, whatever it is. You could go into cardiac arrest because you have no more blood flow, nutrients, oxygen going to that part of the myocardium, that part of the heart muscle. You could drop dead. Um, so the imaging does help in certain scenarios. Um, I forgot what the first part of your question was, but that's the CT angio uh, part of the equation. I guess I'm wondering for for someone who hasn't seen a cardiologist before. Let's say someone's just listening now. They have a relationship with their physician. They get blood tests done. They haven't had a reason to see a cardiologist. Is there any utility of these these scans? For the average person who's not at high risk of cardiovascular disease from a, a kind of screening um, point of view to sort of ascertain where their cardiovascular health is at? Or are they something that we really only use for someone once they have certain risk factors? So if you have no chest pain and no symptoms, you really shouldn't be getting any of these tests. You, if you do have symptoms, you get a stress test because it's a functional test. Now, if you're just curious and you want a CT, angio, and a CAC, they can actually do both together. They'll do the low-dose CAC first and then inject you with the dye and do the CT, angio. There, there's not any utility. I personally have never ordered them myself. There was one 19-year-old that kept getting short of breath on a treadmill. We did a stress in any past, and we did a whole bunch of other things in the past. So we just wanted to see if he had an anomalous coronary to see if his coronary passed between the aorta and pulmonary artery. Um, these are big vessels, and I'll pop up a heart here. If if your coronary artery, like this, this uh, right here, for example, passes between the aorta and pulmonary artery and they swell during exercise, that could cause an occlusion that's big enough to cause a lack of blood flow to that part of the heart and trigger an arrhythmia or shortness of breath or whatever his symptoms were. That was the only scenario that I have actually uh, ordered in, but really there's no utility to these. They're good for research. People will go pay for them like these high paid, you know, executives will go and just pay for them and it's becoming cheaper and most people can get one. I don't know that it adds anything to us that we didn't know based on your LDL. Like we know if your LDL is like over 130, 
you probably have placking. If it's way over 130, it's probably way worse. If you're under 100, under 80, you're probably going to be fine. Um, now, if you're curious and you just want to do these tests for fun or to satisfy your curiosity, that's okay. But I, I don't know that we that that we would use them in day-to-day -day clinical practice. They're great for research because they do give us some things. Oh, you said carotid in, um, intimal thickening as well. They use that in research to see if plaques regress. Like I know, for example, when they tested Crestor and Lipitor, the two most potent statins, you did see a slight regression of plaques in the carotid intima. The reason they use that is it's accessible. You can just put an ultrasound right up on somebody's neck and see it, whereas it's very difficult to do non-invasive you know, plaque imaging on coronaries. Now that we have slightly better imaging modalities like cardiac MRIs and things like that, maybe um, we can do that. But this was like a surrogate marker for placking in your um, your heart. Because if you have carotid artery thickening or placking and you have it in your peripheral and you, you probably also have it in your coronaries. Um, so that was the logic there to test the efficacy of drugs to see if we can cause it to regress uh, or not. It's a it's an okay marker. Um, it Not everybody who has carotid problems has coronary, um, but still it's something useful for research where we want to know, it, it, let's say this is one millimeter today, we put you on Crestor, wait a year, check it, maybe it got to 0.98, you know, uh, the very minimal regression, but that's big in something that's that small. Um, so I don't know that it plays a role, you know, clinically. It's They're good for research, however. So for someone listening who is just curious, is is happy to, to cover the costs of the imaging, um, which, which of those three, it sounds like the CT angiogram is going to be the one that you would recommend. The CT angiogram would definitely give us the most clinical value and relevance because, because based off that, we could go straight to cardiac angiogram. If you have a LAD lesion that's 70% and you kind of have symptoms but you don't, we could justify doing a cardiac cath, I mean, and, and seeing if that's uh, something that needs to be stented or not. You mentioned regression, and that gets, gets me thinking. If someone uh, has a scan done, there is a significant amount of, of soft plaque um, and they change their lifestyle. They jump on some medications, whether it's a statin or a statin plus azetamide, PCSK9 inhibitors. Um, the, the amount of that plaque can reduce. I think people are really interested to understand this. Can they reverse some of that damage? And is, is, it, is that reversal, that regression, what causes the reduction in events? So that's a really good question because everybody on here says, how do I reverse plaques? How do I reverse placking? How do I make it regress? How do I do this? The the studies, once you have plaque, you have plaque. It's, all, it's very difficult. There's almost no way to make it go away completely. If you have like a 20% lesion with Crestor and Lipitor, and if you do everything right, start eating better, all the things we've talked about, you know, lifestyle-wise, you can stabilize it. Generally, most people will be able to stabilize it and in some cases make it regress a little because it like when it calcifies, it kind of just like kind of tightens up and pulls in a little. There's no way to make it go away completely if, if that's what they're asking. And, and people ask this question, well, what can I do to reverse heart disease or what can I do to reverse, you know, placking in my arteries? There's not a lot you can do to reverse it, but you can stop it. You can halt it. You can make it so it doesn't progress. You can make it so it doesn't get worse. You know, statins do that. Exercise can do that. Eating different, you know, diet like the things we've talked about can do that. Reducing saturated fat can make a 
a really big difference. You know, those kind of things matter, but to make it go away completely is not generally uh, a possibility. Okay, let's finish off here with some more uh, diet related claims or points of confusion and you covered seed oils at the beginning so we won't go back over that but another oil that often pops up is coconut oil this one's been pretty hyped up over the last five or ten years people putting it in their coffee cooking with it three times a day it's it's become a quote-unquote sort of superfood i've suggested to to this community, it's probably not a great idea for folks to use regularly anyway. What are your kind of thoughts here on coconut oil? So if you want the quick answer, it's good for maybe your skin and hair, but not good for your heart. <laughs> no, so I, pu- I put a video on this because I, I kept getting that question too, and I, I think I tagged you in it. Coconut oil does raise your LDL, and significantly, it's not like a small amount. I believe it was like 10, maybe 20 millimoles, like like per 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 deciliter or whatever um, but it does go up and 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 we know the higher and 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 we know from all the studies we've talked about the higher the ldl the higher the cardiovascular mortality cardiovascular event rates um pretty much everything goes up so fish oil too people will say well isn't fish oil healthy so it, there was a time in the past where we thought giving people fish oil was a great idea we even made it a prescription medication called lovaza it was epa and dha fish oil they found that people in japan they ate more fish maybe the fish oil was protective they did a few like you know studies looked okay once we actually started giving people this their ldls went up rates of atrial fibrillation went up um, inflammation, inflammatory markers went up. So we said, okay, this is a horrible idea. Let's stop doing it. So we stopped fish oils. People thought, well, we should take it for triglycerides. Well, that just makes the number look prettier with no outcome data. You're not living longer. You're not reducing cardiovascular mortality, event rates, anything. Why are we trying to just make a number look pretty? Kind of like how they used to give niacin for HDL. We used to think HDL is protective, and and it is to a certain extent, but we used to give it way more you know, importance than it needs. We would put people on niacin, and it takes about a year and a half before you notice the HDL go up on niacin. But then it didn't translate into reduced mortality, reduced cardiovascular death, any outcomes data. So we said this is also useless. It was called Niaspan, the uh, prescription version of it. So then they decided, well, let's com- let's take out DHA and use only EPA, only that part of the fish oil. And they made a new medication called Vasipa. And supposedly they did this trial and it showed a 22% reduction in all this stuff. But it turns out they're comparing it to the placebo, which was mineral oil, which was a pro-inflammatory oil. Dr. Nissen out of Cleveland Clinic went back, reran the numbers. It was called the strength trial. And they did it against a non-inflammatory oil, which was corn oil. Uh, and it turned out it had no effect, no benefits, no reduced mortality, no reduction in anything. So we've gotten away from that. But it still did cause uh, atrial fibrillation. For those who don't know atrial fibrillation, your top two chambers of your heart are supposed to squeeze like this. They don't squeeze anymore. They just quiver. It's an irregular rhythm. It doesn't kill you, but it can cause strokes. It can cause all kinds of things. It makes you very short of breath, very fatigued. Um, so we've gotten away from that as well. Both coconut oil and fish oil both raise your LDL and fish oil can give you atrial fibrillation, assuming you're obviously already prone to it. It's not going to magically give it to you, but the incidence of atrial fibrillation went up. So where does that leave you then with your, I mean, food's obviously different to a supplement, but, um, you know, most of the data that I've looked at on fish consumption suggests it leads to improved 
uh, health outcomes, at least compared to like red meat and, and white meat anyway. And when it features within these these kind of dietary patterns, you mentioned the Mediterranean diet before, you see pretty consistently good health outcomes. So what are your recommendations with regards to fish? And if someone's not eating fish for whatever reason, does supplementation, do you have different advice in that context with regards to supplementation of DHA and EPA? So a lot of times we find that, like for example, vitamin E, we vitamin E is an antioxidant and, and we thought it was a very powerful antioxidant and it's great. We start supplementing people with vitamin E, 400 IU units a day or whatever it does, mortality went up. Um, so we, we decided that's a really bad idea. It was, it was in the Journal of American, the JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. This was like, we're talking like 2001, maybe a long time ago, over 20 years ago. More, cardiovascular mortality went up. People died more if they were supplementing with vitamin E. So, but if you ate the fruits and vegetables that it came from, you actually lived longer. So I think we're getting a similar kind of situation here where if you're, if you're eating the, you know, wild caught salmon on its own and getting the omega threes and whatnot from there, it's healthier. You live longer, you know, especially if you're substituting it for, you know, uh, saturated fat type, you know, meals, but then taking it as a pill or a supplement actually increased um, atrial fibrillation or didn't have as much benefit as eating the actual fish itself. So like somebody might tell you, well, we're going to send you, we're going to sell you this greens. Like, you know, you don't get enough greens in your life. I'm going to send you a green supplement. This is all the greens in the world. It's, you know, desiccated greens or, you know, cow livers or whatever it might be um, that they're selling you. You just take this thing and it helps you where it turns out if you actually ate the natural food you know, product itself, the whole, the whole fruit, the vegetable, the salmon, the whatever, it's actually protective, but, but supplementing that doesn't help. So for me personally, I don't tell anybody to take fish oil, um, because it raises your LDL. Same thing with coconut. I don't, you know, I say, just get it from your diet. It's you're probably, you know, Americans, especially, and I don't know how it is in Australia, but Americans, especially we're not deficient in anything. We are way over nutri <laughs> nutrition. Um, you know, we're, we're reaching obesity rates or, or actually overweight rates of like over 70%, almost 80% now. And even children are close to 20%. Um, so I'm, I'm sure it's getting that way all over the world. But definitely, we are not undernourished. You don't need anything. The one thing I would say most people probably need is vitamin D because we don't get enough sun. And you don't really want to get that much sun anyways because of the risks of skin cancer. And then women generally need calcium because of uh, osteoporosis and whatnot. And I'm not like an endocrinologist, so don't ask me about that one. But vitamin D, we know, is also cardioprotective if you're between 30 and 50 um, on the levels when we measure and and every single cell in the human body has a vitamin D receptor and I'm not even here telling you you need to take it you absolutely could get by without taking it if you get a little bit of sun every day they say it all, all it takes is 10-15 minutes a day of just even on your hands and a little bit on your face you don't have to go sit in the sun for long periods of time um, but, but, but vitamin D would be the only thing really that people need. Now, if you have a known vitamin deficiency, like you've been tested and you need thiamine, for example, or folate or whatever it is, please go take those. Um, it would be very bad not to. Um, but the vast majority of humans, assuming they don't have any known vitamin deficiencies, probably vitamin D would be the only thing um, that they should take. Me personally, as a bodybuilder, you know, certified personal trainer too, I take protein in the form of whey. And I'll drink coffee, so caffeine and protein. The only thing I'll take every once in a while too is maybe creatine. It's been studied; it does really good things. It helps you lift more. But I've gotten away from that even. So really, the only additional like thing that I would take that's not natural um, is probably whey protein, and then that's about it, really. 
We could probably carve out an, an entire episode on exercise tips from a cardiologist. So we maybe we we, we come back and do that sometime. Um, that's interesting on on fish oil raising LDL uh, cholesterol because my understanding was that polyunsaturated fats um, upregulated the LDL receptor as opposed to saturated fats doing doing the opposite. I, that was the kind of mechanism that I understood as to how these fats differentially affected lipids and, and outcomes. I think a lot of it might be just poor quality supplements. So, But we definitely know from the studies, if you took out saturated fat, and especially if you substitute it with polyunsaturated especially, you actually had better outcomes, your LDL went down, all of that improved. It might be that the supplement industry is just using any old random oils and calling it fish oil because it's unregulated. There's no regulation to the supplement industry. So I don't know that um, I'd have to go back and look, um, but that would that that could be one explanation to it. Um, but we oh, but we know like if you eat the actual fruits and vegetables or the whole fish or like actual real food, you get much better micronutrients and vitamins and things like that than you know taking it in a you know small little pill form that supposedly has 700 different things in it tell me about the oils in dr allo's kitchen at home what's the family using honestly i i i i have olive oil um the one that's very flavorful and and very like uh virgin cold pressed to like put on salads one that's not as cold pressed to like kind of just spray on something if i want to make a egg real fast or something i don't i don't have any fancy oils we do probably have canola I don't use it a lot. It's in the cupboard somewhere. That though, avocado oil and peanut oil. The nice thing about them is they have a higher smoke point. The biggest problem with oils like olive oil, it has a low smoke point. If you heat it too much, um, you get more trans fats. Um, a lot of it will convert to trans, and we know trans are very atherogenic. Um, but olive oil or avocado oil and peanut oil have a higher smoke point. So if you are going to cook at a higher temperature, especially like if we're making like. Uh, some homemade fries or something that those would be preferable what's your view on canola oil so my view is it's it's not a harmful oil they the uh the carnivore crowd and the seed oil people try to make it sound like this is some horrific thing you are ingesting and if you just watch the videos on how they process it and they go on and on and on it's actually been tested we have tons and tons of studies on this and like i said earlier there was a 31.9 year study with 39.1 years of follow-up in circulation i'll be happy to send you that it actually was cardioprotective um obviously depends on like what you're substituting out but going from butter for example and especially margarine but even if you didn't people who ate, ate canola oil by itself regardless of anything else was cardioprotective so these people, like like I think the fear-mongering and the food phobia and the demagoguery is to sell you a dream, which ultimately leads you to buying their books, supplements, uh, coaching programs, whatever it is. And there's nothing wrong with that, but just don't lie to people. If you want to be like, here's my, my pre-workout, fine. Here's my supplement, fine. But don't scare people into thinking the only way they can live healthy is if they eat raw testicles or liver or whatever it is, and then selling the solution. You know, you create a problem, agitate it, and then sell the solution. They talk about that in marketing all the time. It's called problem, agitate, solve. You create a problem, you agitate it, and then you solve it with your little, you know, magic pills. Um, it's very unethical and, and wrong. But if you want to sell like vitamins or a book or something, do it, but do it ethically. Yeah, the problem with that is when they tell a bit of a fib or a lie, whatever we want to call it, 
it it leaves the person thinking on the other end who's receiving that information thinking, gosh, I've been doing it all wrong. And and then all of a sudden they're they're in a bit of a vulnerable state where they're likely to make an impulse decision to to buy that program or buy that supplement without really digging into the claim and the research behind it. Right. They teach you in marketing if you can create a new problem that's never been explored before it's more likely to sell. Like if I just go tell people, hey, buy my book. It's just an ordinary weight loss book. No one's going to buy it. But if I say, this is the weight loss book about eating carnivore and all the new research and how your doctor got it wrong and your doctors lied to you and LDL is good for you and saturated fat, you're very contrarian. You're creating a new problem. That sells because like, oh my God, whoa, whoa, who lied to me? What's going on here? I need to know about this. You know, you create this awareness and people want their problems solved and they didn't even realize they had this problem. You created a new problem, agitated it, and you sell the solution. That works all the time. You mentioned eggs before. Where do you sit on eggs and dietary cholesterol? This is another one that comes up quite a bit. We've spoken a lot here today about saturated fat and serum cholesterol. Is dietary cholesterol uh, something that you speak about to your patients or do you m mostly focus on saturated fats? So I, I usually focus on saturated fats, but the, the like, and I'm talking to you, I'm a, I'm a cardiologist. I have chickens at home. We have chickens and we get their eggs and we eat them. The, the, egg, the egg studies have gone back and forth, but I think if you look at the totality of evidence, people at extremes of dietary cholesterol intake like we usually recommend 200 milligrams a day, maybe up to 300, right? So that's like one, two, maybe three eggs a day. Um, but the totality of evidence says about one egg a day, two eggs a day is not going to be a problem. But people at extremes of dietary cholesterol, like 400, 500, up to 1,000 milligrams a day, they do have increased LDL and increased cardiovascular mortality. So if you're within the normal ranges, you're probably fine. But if you're eating 10 eggs a day or something outrageous like that for a long time, we're not saying like on Sunday you ate five eggs, you know, no big deal. But if you're doing that like 10 eggs a day every day for years, that's going to add up. And, and it'll show in your cholesterol profile. Your, your cholesterol will go up. Your LDL will go up. So we know that that's, that's going to happen. Dietary cholesterol usually is also with saturated fat. It's kind of hard to separate the two. Um, but we know at extremes of cholesterol intake, there is an effect. So yeah, in the, in the normal ranges, let's say 300 or below, you're probably going to be fine. But if you start getting above 400, 500, 600, definitely there is an effect. So, and I posted a couple of videos on eggs, one showing the side where, yes, eggs are great for you. And one showing the sides of, man, eh, maybe you want to tone it down a little. So, you know, the, the evidence is like a little bit back and forth. I think the general consensus is one egg a day, two eggs a day, probably not a problem. They are super nutritious. They're full of vitamins. They're full of minerals. It's like one little very nutritious package in like a little thing. Um, so it's, it's almost like taking a supplement. It's like one little packet you just eat every day. It's fine. But if you're eating 10, 15 eggs a day, that could definitely uh, lead to some very elevated serum markers. Do you think that one of the best ways of kind of determining the, let's say someone listening, I think some of the listeners here probably do not consume eggs. I don't, but there'll be plenty of listeners that do, and they'll be interested in um, how much they can consume. And you, you mentioned there, there's a lot of different evidence suggesting different things, but broadly speaking, you talk about one or two eggs a day, I often come back to this idea of as an individual. So we were talking there about public health kind of recommendations and results from 
from studies looking at the average on the individual level do you do you agree that probably you know eating a certain dietary pattern testing your lipids seeing where they're at going back to what you mentioned before like the target ldl cholesterols if you're above that and not in that then modulating and making some changes maybe you do need to reduce uh, your egg consumption or saturated fats or, or maybe you don't yeah absolutely that would be a very logical way of doing it if you're eating let's say three eggs a day you check your cholesterol your ldl is 180 <laughs> probably want to reduce that and and one variable at a time reduce that and see just like a scientific experiment you wouldn't reduce that plus butter plus whatever pick one thing and change it and see wait three months check it again um, I, I would completely agree with that. And if your LDL gets back down into the normal range, you know that you're more sensitive to that type of dietary pattern. Absolutely. Let's talk about red meat. It came up before. I'm interested in your view on unprocessed red meat. So not the, the sort of processed uh, red meats, the, the bacons and the salamis, but the steak and lamb chops. Do does this type of red meat independently raise the risk of cardiovascular disease? So if it's high in saturated fat, yes, absolutely. But we know like there are certain cuts of lean meat, like filet mignon, for example. It's super lean and it will not raise your uh, dietary saturated fat intake above 6% because it is pure like lean meat. And if you buy ground beef, for example, that is 94% slash 6% fat, um, you're not getting a lot of saturated fat. So I'm not entirely anti-red meat, but the vast majority of people, when you tell them to eat red meat and it's okay, they're going to think cheeseburgers, ribeyes, lamb uh, ribs, you know, lamb chops, the fattiest, fattiest, tastiest parts of uh, red meat. That's not what we mean. You can enjoy, and even turkey, uh, which is super lean, can be bad for you if you eat the skin and you know the, the browner parts of the meat or it's all the brown parts. You could have a higher saturated fat intake. So I'm, I'm advocating for just being cognizant of what you're eating. I'm not, I'm not anti-red meat. There was, there, had, there was multiple studies done where people did eat red meat but kept their saturated fat intake at 6% or less. Nothing bad happened. Um, so you can do that in a way that's healthy, but it gets expensive. Like tenderloin is not cheap. Uh, filet mignon is the most expensive. Like, you know, one long strip of tenderloin, it's probably $200, at least here. Um, so it is it is doable. I'm not against it, but I, I personally, I'll eat filet every once in a while. In the summer, I, I don't mind a ribeye steak here and there. And maybe like one day we'll make burgers, but it's not like an everyday thing for me at all. I'm mostly Mediterranean. I, I, I actually wrote a, uh, a healthy heart cookbook about Mediterranean diet and eating because a lot of my patients are asking me for recipes and I don't have time to like sit there with a patient when I have 50 of them sitting in the waiting room and say, well, let's go over this. And I, you know, talk for three hours. I could talk to them for three hours about healthy eating. And I've given those lectures at medical conferences, teaching physicians how to teach their patients to lose weight properly, healthy eating, exercise, nutrition, physiology, all that stuff. I don't have time to do that. So I created uh, some books for them. One is a weight loss book and one is a Mediterranean cookbook, then the chapters are divided up into calories needed to lose weight. So let's say, Simon, you need to eat 2,200 calories a day to lose weight. The chapter, you go to the 2,200 chapter, make those foods, lunch, breakfast, dinner, dessert, whatever, you would lose weight. You'd also get enough protein that if you don't lose muscle, because I want to retain muscle mass, because I'm also a bodybuilder too, and it would work for you. So I don't think um, that it's 
the I think it's important to, to to teach people correct eating patterns that fit into what they enjoy. Like I always tell my patients, listen, Leslie, I use the Leslie diet. I have a video called Leslie diet. Go on YouTube, type in Dr. Allo Leslie diet. Leslie came in and he's like, Dr. Allo, what's the best diet? And he's a guy, by the way. I said, Leslie, the best diet for Leslie is called the Leslie diet. What you've been eating for the last 30 to 40 years is most likely what you're going to be eating for the next 30 or 40 years. If I told you to eat kale and quinoa for the rest of your life, there is zero chance that you are going to actually do that. You'll do it for 10 minutes, maybe five minutes, maybe a month, but you're going to hate me and you're going to hate your life and you're just going to go back to eating what you used to eat. But if I tell you, eat what Leslie eats, just half as much, take away half the sandwich, take away half the salad, take away half the burger even whatever it is you eat half the snickers bar half the doritos bag what you normally eat if you take away half of it technically you should lose half your body weight and if you do no matter how you achieve the weight loss all of your cardiovascular markers improve your your appetite is more sensitive appetite regulation gets better and as they lose weight they're all their inflammatory markers go down. All their cardiovascular risk markers go down. Everything improves with the weight loss alone, regardless of what macronutrients you emphasize. So for my patients, I try to keep it simple. If they want to track with an app, I'll help them with that. My patients are generally older, obviously, so they don't like, they're not very good with apps. Some of them are, and I'll help them with that. But generally, if you tell them, listen, take away half your food, wait 20 minutes. If you're still hungry, go back and eat a little bit more. But if if you're, I'm sorry, if you're starving, go back and eat a little bit more. But if you're just a little bit hungry, leave it alone. You're supposed to be a little bit hungry. That's how you'll lose weight. Be, you know, you want to be just a little bit hungry at the end of the day. That generally takes away about 25 to 30% of their total calories, which is a moderate calorie deficit. They should lose weight. All of their health markers improved. I've had so many patients come in and tell me, doc, I lost 70 pounds. I did what you told me. And, you know, I'm like, what did I tell you? Because I tell different people similar things, but not always in the same way. And I want to hear it from them. He says, I just took everything and just cut it in half, like you said. And they lost 70 pounds in six months. Um, and, it, and it works because, and you're not asking them to completely change their dietary pattern and start eating foods they dislike or think are disgusting or are appalled by, you know, or new cooking patterns. Oh no, now I have to eat all whole foods and I got to go to the grocery store and buy everything. And like people are afraid of making significant changes or they're just not able to. They're 70 years old. A 70 year old is not magically now at age 70 going to completely change his diet pattern that he's been doing for the last 30 or 40 years. So I tell him just stick with it. Just cut out a little bit every day and you will actually lose weight and all of your health markers will improve without question. Um, so that's what I usually tell my uh, older patients. Now, if you're like into bodybuilding and muscle hypertrophy and you wanna do all other kinds of things, it gets way more precise. But for the general person, if you give them that kind of simple, you know, take home message, they probably will do really well. Yeah, I guess, you know, one thing that sort of comes to mind when I when I think about that is if you're trying to lose weight, you you want that to feel as easy as possible. So sometimes, uh, you know, when I look at someone's diet, uh, something else that I often consider is how how full they're feeling like where's their satiety at right and and so if someone is just eating quote-unquote sort of junk food and you cut that in half do you feel as though their satiety might not be that great they might have more cravings compared to the same number of calories from a higher quality 
group of foods. Yeah, those studies have been done, and that is absolutely true. If you eat more whole food, like for example, boiled potatoes are the most uh, satiating food. Um, the 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 issue comes down to what can they actually follow. Um, granted, like what what you're saying is absolutely true. One thing that we know about people who are obese is their hunger signaling is dysregulated. They have a, they have what we call a dysregulated appetite. The more obese you are and the less active you are, your appetite is completely dysregulated. You never know when you're hungry or when to stop eating. So the one way to sensitize their appetite and get it back to being regulated is to actually have them do a little more activity. But in the meantime, like I have these patients that are older and it's going to be very difficult for them to suddenly start adding more fruit and more fiber. I tell them all this stuff anyways. I mean, they come in, I tell them all that. And if they tell me, doc, it's too hard. I hate fruits. I hate vegetables. Okay, fine. Eat what you normally eat, just a lot less. And they can go with that because it's simple and it's easy. Yes, eating you know, a bucket full of broccoli or lettuce, for example, like, like, like I tell my patients, if you, if you're hungry at night, go eat a head of, uh, iceberg lettuce. It's like eating colored air. You've just eaten air (laughs) that is colored and you will feel full and satisfied. And you probably will be able to sleep not feeling hungry, but you ate like seven, maybe 10 calories, right? So, um, there are lots of gimmicks and tricks and we, we could talk about this for three hours, probably just this topic alone. Um, but for the general average older person that is already set in their ways, telling them, listen, just eat what you're used to eating. Just cut it in half, wait 20 minutes, let your body realize if it's full or not, and then go back and eat a little bit more if you're starving. But if you're not starving, just leave it alone and try your best to stick to this. You're not changing your diet radically. Now, yes, if you're younger and you're more able to change and you're willing to change, uh, then yeah, absolutely. I will give you like a whole entire, you know, eat more wholesome foods, Mediterranean style, the heart healthy kind of stuff that you're always talking about. Absolutely. Without question. Um, we would do that, but the, the older the person becomes, the harder it is for them to radically change everything. Now there are some people that are just like, they flip a switch and they just want to change everything. They're going to quit smoking. They're going to go to the gym. They're going to exercise. They're going to do everything all at once. And they want to change their diet. That is very difficult because the 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 recidivism is very high. The the likelihood that they actually do that is not very good. Um, so, like you said, t- tell people to eat the diet that they feel is the least restrictive, um, because that seems to uh, be the thing that they're probably going to stick to the most. So that would be my thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I guess it comes back to who are you working with? Who's who's the individual? So I, I definitely take your your point there about not changing too much and and that being a more effective approach for for certain people can we just come back quickly to red meat i want to share my view on on red meat here a little bit and i'm happy to kind of share any of of this research with you i think you might be interested in it but i'd been interested by the kind of changing headlines you know you would see um you know, one month unprocessed red meat is linked to increasing risk of cardiovascular disease and cancer. And then the next month it's like, whoops, we got that wrong. Scientists got that wrong. You know, eat as much red meat as you want. And I'm talking about unprocessed red meat here, to be clear, not not the processed ones, which are a little bit more clear within within the research. And when I've looked at this, I've been really interested to see that in the U.S., cohorts where you look at red meat consumption unprocessed red meat consumption and 
and risk of cardiovascular disease and cancer, you you typically will see a significant effect. And when you look at those cohorts and you look at the the different intake levels of red meat, there's a really widespread. So you have some people who are consuming zero or next to no red meat uh, per day, and then you have others that are up at 100 grams or 150 grams or north of that. So you you get sort of sufficient contrast when you're comparing high and low and there's a big difference. And in those cohorts, you do see a significant effect. Whereas the Asian cohorts and some of the European cohorts, and this is why I think the evidence is quite mixed and you do get these chopping and changing headlines, when they compare high and low, well, the high groups are usually only at about 60 grams a day because their total red meat consumption is much lower in those countries. So now all all of a sudden in those groups, the high and low is there's not a whole lot of contrast. You don't see a significant effect. And I think some people interpret this as, oh, it's all over the place around the world. But my read on that is that, no, actually the dose seems to matter here. And what we're seeing in the US is we get a much greater contrast between our high group and and our low group. And it suggests to me that, when you're going north of that 100 to 150 grams a day, then you're likely to be increasing the risk of cardiovascular disease and cancer. And back to something else you said about saturated fat, it, it might be that saturated fat is the primary reason that unprocessed red meat could raise risk, but it could also be other things like heme iron, for example. Yeah, no, I agree. Obviously, too much heme iron gives you hemochromatosis. Obviously, that's a genetic condition. Um, but like, I think, it, I think it's similar to the saturated fat curve where very low levels of, uh, red meat, not a problem or, or almost zero. There is an infliction point at some point, maybe it's around the 60, uh, to hundred gram mark. Maybe it's hundred or 250 somewhere in there at above a certain level. There's no way you're consuming very lean filet, you know, tenderloin, at 17, 16 ounces or, you know, a pound a day, that's super expensive. There's nobody that does that. It's got to be cheeseburgers and, you know, less quality, higher fat content meats. And I think that you're, you're, that's probably true. At some point, there's this infliction where anything above this level, it, you know, like sort of like saturated fat, if you drop it from 26% of all calories down to like 18%, it's not going to make a huge difference. Drop it from 13 to 10, probably not a big difference, but from 10 to six or seven is a huge difference. And then like from six down to like three or four is not a big difference either, which is very hard to reach like three, um, even if you're eating just plants. Uh, but still, I think it's probably that type of a curve. Um, we know that it is more carcinogenic also. And a lot of times because of the way, way it's cooked, when you char meat on a grill, all meat, not just red meat, it is more carcinogenic. When you smoke meat, it is more carcinogenic. So I think a lot of there's a lot of factors involved, and it's not as simple as just saying uh, red meat. There was a study done on the UK Biobank where they looked at people with the higher red meat intake versus a little bit lower. When and and in terms of saturated fat mainly, um, they found that when you corrected for BMI, there was no difference. So like when you correct for inflammation, because BMI, you know, the more obese you are, the more inflammation you have. When you correct for inflammatory markers or inflammation by correcting for BMI, the leaner you were, 
the more red meat and more saturated fat intake you could get away with. So let's say a super lean person, bodybuilder, a male that's like 10 to 15% body fat, female somewhere in the 15 to maybe 22 range body fat percentage, pretty lean. They could get away with a little more saturated fat than the 35% body fat person. The more inflammation you have, the more fire and gas you throw on top of it, the more bad damage is going to happen to your heart and atherosclerosis and all of that. So I think it's a multi-pronged uh, problem. And I, and I, I, the leaner you are and the closer to your ideal body weight you are, you could probably get away with more saturated fat than your obese counterparts without question. Um, and I'll send you those studies. You probably would uh, like those. Maybe I'll post a video and tag you in it. Um, but they but they have done that where they correct for BMI and they don't see as much of a difference. The, the leaner you are, you're probably going to be okay. Whereas the higher the levels of fat and obesity, more inflammation, the more you eat saturated fat and inflammatory type, uh, your, your inflammatory markers go up, your cholesterol goes up, diabetes, all that stuff worsens. So I think that plays a crucial role as well. I, I don't think it's as easy um, as that, but definitely the saturated fat sigmoidal curb probably is is also similar because of the red meat has more saturated fat than other types of meat yeah i think that that makes sense the the fate of the some of these nutrients might be different if you're in a hypo uh, caloric diet or at energy balance versus hypercaloric um and subsequently the effect that they're having on on health outcomes but i'd love to to, to read that for sure um one other question on meat I know we're getting to the end here, but a claim that I often see from individuals who want to, I guess, downplay any of the associations between red meat and um, various diseases is that this, the studies fail to distinguish between high-quality sort of grass-fed and, and finished beef versus grain-fed beef, um, insinuating, I guess, here that this that quality matters and that grass-fed and finished beef has very different nutritional properties and cannot be put into the same bucket. How do you kind of feel about this? Is grass-fed beef better than grain-fed beef for heart health? Before I answer that one, they also will say, well, people who eat red meat are also less likely to be healthy. More of them are smokers. More of them are inactive. More of them eat McDonald's, cheeseburgers, and don't, you know, aren't healthy in other ways that's not true because we can control for those confounders in the studies we'd look at the subgroup of smokers the subgroup of diabetics the subgroup of obesity the subgroup of activity sedentary whatever it is we can control for that so that claim is also false when people say well the only reason that people eat red meat are actually dying or having more cvd risks or events or mortality is because those people are generally unhealthy anyways <laughs> no we test for that and we can figure that out with the studies we take out those confounders um there there is the the grass-fed versus grain-fed uh debate um they have found that changing uh, beef or red meat over to grass-fed does change the type of saturated fats the the acids the fatty acids and whatnot in it to a more favorable one um, but still at the end of the day, I don't think we have outcome data. I think I'm, I'm mainly interested in outcome data. I know you are too, but we don't know for certain that eating grass fed meat. And if you only ate that and didn't eat any grain fed, that suddenly you would live longer or have a better, you know, lipid profile, whatever. It does definitely change 
the types of fatty acids that are in the meat. It definitely looks different. It absolutely tastes different. Um, the reason people don't like it is it tastes very gamey. It tastes like deer or like these wild animals like goat or lamb or whatever that mainly graze on grass. It tastes very gamey and people don't like it. That's why they started feeding beef and cows grain because it changed the flavor profile. It's more bland. It doesn't have that gamey taste to it. So I don't know that we know the final answer uh, on that one. Um, and I don't know that we can ever control that enough to, to find that out without like a metabolic ward study or just because an observational study probably isn't going to give you a good answer where we just say, all right, you guys eat only grass fed for 30 years. You guys only eat grain fed for 30 years. There's so many confounders in that and it's probably not going to be good to do because you don't really know what they're doing it's more expensive it's harder to find i mean i don't know that we'll get a final answer on that but we do know that the fatty acid profile in the grass-fed and grain-fed is different but i don't know that the outcomes are going to be that different or at least we don't have that answer and is it different enough to change recommendations to limit red meat in favor of fatty fish and or legumes, for example, um, probably not based on the the kind of small nu nutrient differences that I've seen, but it's an in interesting question. Right. And that's the one thing with, with these studies. If you're taking out saturated fat, what are you replacing it with? I mean, that is always a question. If you're removing saturated fat out of your diet and you're eating I don't know, coconut oil, or well, I mean, that would be the same thing, but like more like processed sugars, like Pop-Tarts and Twinkies and stuff. Um, obviously, it's not going to be that favorable. It's still better than saturated fat. But if you switch to like olive oil or whole grains or more fruits and vegetables, obviously, it would make more of a difference. So I think a lot of it is also when you take out saturated fat, what is the replacement that you're consuming more of in, in return? Let's finish here on salt and hypertension. And I'm interested to know if, if you're a fan of salt substitutes like the potassium chloride, sort of light salt or, or low salt for people with hypertension. Yeah, we have one here called New Salt. It's just the letter N-U. Well, I'm sure you have it there. It's just a potassium chloride instead of sodium chloride. It definitely helps. The, the vast majority of salt in your diet does not come from the salt shaker. It comes from the salt in the food, foods that are preserved like any any cold cut meats any sandwich meat deli meats they're preserved in sodium nitrate so when you have foods that are preserved in sodium nitrate that's a high salt load foods that are in packages that are frozen that come in a can like beans that are in a can soup that is in a can um, all of those kind of things is the majority of your salt. The little bit you sprinkle on your food is not that consequential. Um, and you can use new salt or potassium chloride instead. It tastes about the same. Um, so I, I'm, I, I feel people do do them and I ask, I tell my patients to switch it out. And sometimes they have like the half and half mixture where it's like half potassium chloride, half sodium chloride. It tastes more similar to salt. Even the new salt that's all potassium chloride, you can't really tell a difference. Um, but definitely salt does raise, raise hypertension. Um, there's always somebody trying to sell a new book called the salt diet or the cholesterol myth or the, uh, the, the salt myth or whatever it is. Everything you've ever been told about heart disease is not true. Um, those are usually sensational and somebody trying to sell you a fake narrative to prove their point. Yes, you can find studies that showed that increasing salt intake did not have an effect on blood pressure. You can find studies that show the exact opposite. You can find studies that showed it was neutral. 
But if you look at the totality of evidence, one of the mainstays of treatment for blood pressure is a medication called hydrochlorothiazide. Its job is to make you pee out more salt. It works fantastically well. Um, so I think that usually when people are at extremes and just trying to sell a book or a narrative, um, the science is always junk science or they've just cherry picked the science. Like I said earlier, you can cherry pick science to prove almost anything. Um, but you have to look at the totality of evidence, but yes, yeah, sodium, uh, or potassium chloride salt substitutes are fantastic and they definitely do help. Great. Well, I think that's a, a nice place to, to finish here. Dr. Ella, thank you so much. You've cleared up a, a tremendous amount of confusion today and I'm super glad that you and I connected on, on TikTok. I feel like it's a, a friendship in the making. Before I, uh, I let you go, if you were to leave people with one thing to focus on coming back to this idea of keeping things simple something that would give them the greatest chance of not having to see a cardiologist what would that be reduce your saturated fat intake well stop smoking but not that many people smoke but if it had to be the next best thing would be reduce saturated fat intake and stay active. I'm very huge into activity. I coach sports. I play sports. I try to get all my kids and friends. I have a gym at home. We lift weights at home. Uh, highly recommend lifting weights because it does increase muscle mass, which increases your basic metabolic rate and ultimately reduces um, chronic disease too. So it would, if it came down to two things, eat less saturated fat and lift weights. Love it. Great. Well, this was incredibly informative and I know the listeners will be extremely grateful as am I. So thank you so much for, for coming on and being so generous with your time. If folks would like to connect with you online, learn more from you, where's the, the best place or places for them to find you? So you can find me on almost any social media platform. If you just type in Dr. Allo or Dr. Mohammed Allo, you can find me. If you go to drallo.net, it takes you to my website. If you go to drallo.tv, it takes you to my YouTube. Um, I have tons and tons of um, videos and articles and blog posts, all science-based with the PubMed studies linked to it. One of my the articles that gets the most views is 11 ways to lower your cholesterol naturally. Every single one of those ways has multiple PubMed studies there. And there's one on Mediterranean diet. There's one on eating red meat. There's one on carnivore. There's one on calcium score. Almost everything we talked about, they're actually, and particle size, LDL particle size, does it really matter? Almost every one of those has tons of data with the PubMed studies and links on there. So highly recommend go to drallo.net or drallo.tv for YouTube and connect with me. I answer all questions. I do my best to reply either with a text message and or a video. I'll even give you a video response if it warrants it that it's harder to do than texting. Um, and I would love to connect with you. I feel we've built a really good community on there and we need to get the word out about how to actually really live healthy uh, on these platforms so that people are not misguided and misinformed and 20 years from now, you're all gonna end up being my patients, which I don't want for you. Terrific. Thank you very much. And uh, I do hope we get to do this again sometime soon. Yeah, hopefully in person one day. <laughs> for sure. Thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive. If you did and you'd like to show your support for the show, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple podcast app wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a comment on the YouTube videos or a review on Apple or Spotify. 
Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I myself and my team will take notes of these comments when planning for future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.